Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, that it is timeless and true, that it transcends age and culture, that it is living and active, that it's not just words on a page, but Lord, it breathes life into us because you breathe your life into its words. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us uh, without anything to guide our lives, to give us instruction for our lives, to give us healing and truth. We thank you for supplying us with your word that meets our every need. We thank you that you are a good and loving father. You've planned out our days, that you have saved us through your son, and that you walk every step of the way through this life through your spirit. And we thank you for being with us. We thank you that the truth of your word can be buried deep within us. Your word have we hidden in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Lord, I pray that the truth of your word would go out today, would not return void, that it would change lives, that it would breathe new life into lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In August 2011, Hurricane Irene came barreling up the Atlantic Ocean. It had been years, and some would even say decades, since a tropical storm of this magnitude had hit the major cities of the East Coast. You can imagine the hype the media gave this impending storm since it had been so long since something like this had happened. In 2009, I had moved to Philadelphia. Growing up in central New York State, I had never experienced a hurricane or a tropical storm or the overwhelming hype that the media was pouring into this. We had blizzards and ice storms and thunderstorms, but never a hurricane or a tropical storm or something like that. So as the news outlets were churning out piece after piece about how devastating this storm was going to be and how it was going to level everything, I started to get sucked into it, pun intended. The night before this hurricane, unlike anything before it, it was, it was set to slam into Philadelphia. You'd have thought I lost my mind. I was running around the parsonage property Cheery and I were living at, picking up every loose garden stone, flower pot, and brick, dragging benches and tables and chairs into the parsonage garage, shoving everything inside that garage aside so I could squeeze our car into it because I thought this monstrous hurricane was going to rip everything out of the ground and heave it miles away. And then when Tropical Storm Irene hit the Philadelphia area, at least inland, what happened? Nothing. I had seen stronger winds during a run-of-the-mill thunderstorm than anything that happened that day. This overhyped storm, unfortunately, then led the way for the East Coast to not really be prepared for when incredibly destructive Sandy hit only a year later. What happened? I joined with millions of others in the major cities of the East Coast in thinking something because, well, everyone else was believing it. Everyone else was believing in the hype. In our passage this morning, there's a certain environment that has taken root in the Thessalonian church. Once again, 
where because so many were promoting a certain message, the Thessalonian church had been convinced to fall headlong first into it once again. The problem was that this message simply wasn't true. But so many people were pushing it that it was causing the church to be rattled, shaken, fearful, and distracted from their real mission. So the first point that we come to in our, in our couple of verses this morning is the context. I want to set this up before we can see how it connects to our, to our lives today. And what does Paul refer to as to what's going on in the church? In verses 1 through 2, uh, for, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you didn't, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. I want everybody to turn to this. If you're having trouble finding it, there's no shame in that. That's fine. Find somebody who looks like they know what they're doing or look it up in the table of contents. It's, it's as easy as that. Because uh, and, and, I want all of us to see this together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We're going to keep coming back to these verses, what these verses are referring to as a whole. So I wanted to read them all together as a whole. So we're going to keep coming back to them. Apparently, in the six months to a year that the Thessalonians had last heard from Paul, several influences had passed through Thessalonica with overhyped information that simply wasn't true. The kicker was that Paul had already addressed this exact same topic in his first letter to them, but as we're all aware of as human beings, we're too easily swayed by the loudest and most constant influences, no matter what anybody else has said to us in the past, right? You'll notice that Paul refers to three different modes of communication in verse 2. What were they? By a spirit, by a message, or a letter as if from us. As one biblical scholar pointed out, when Paul refers to spirit, he's not saying that the Holy Spirit has given the Thessalonians wrong information, but that someone coming in the name of the Holy Spirit, such as someone claiming to have the gift of prophecy, was giving them the wrong information. So apparently, at least one person, either in the Thessalonian church or more possibly from outside the Thessalonian church, had passed through Thessalonica. And we have to remember, here's a map of the ancient world here. I'm going to save you some time here. We're talking about Thessalonica right over here. We have to remember that Thessalonica was a major port city in the ancient Roman world. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, religions, and thought passed through there. And if we remember, there were these itinerant so-called prophets going around in Paul's day, that Paul was constantly reminding his readers, I'm not one of those guys. These guys would go from town to town, claiming to be a prophet or a philosopher, spout off whatever they wanted to, and then hold their hand out for a donation. Paul had to constantly battle this rumor that he was just like these other guys, peddling their message for money. 
So we can very easily imagine a scenario where one of these so-called prophets made his way to the major city of Thessalonica and peddling this message that the world was already in the time of God's wrath and doom known to us as the biblically prophesied time of the Great Tribulation. Paul had already explained to them why they didn't need to waste any time worrying about that in his first letter to them. However, some members of the church already sensitive to this topic probably heard this message in the city's marketplace and it started getting the wheels in their heads turning again. They possibly thought, but wait, this guy claims to be a prophet too. Why should we believe what Paul has already told us over this guy? Sometimes we as humans only need one shred of something to give credence to what we're already thinking about something. And once we have it, we don't wait for any other evidence. We just take off with that shred of evidence because it, can, because it confirms something that we already have going on in here. That hype apparently began to build and began to get more personal. Someone else showed up in Thessalonica, possibly wanting to meet with some members of the church itself and possibly coming from another church. They then brought a message as translated in the NASB or a report as translated in other versions or a word, which is the direct translation of the Greek word used here, logos. This person may have found out about this church in Thessalonica and decided that they had a message that this church needed to hear. The problem was that this message was not grounded in sound theology. It was a message that lots of people were believing in the early church, but one that was not rooted in scripture, nor was it being preached by the apostles. Therefore, it was a dangerous message, but one that nonetheless was snowballing. Why? Because it was popular, fascinating, and trending on ancient Twitter. Its secret was that it got your attention. Satan knew that if he could get a message going in the early church that put fear in the hearts of its members and distracted them from the mission of the gospel, it would have to be attention-grabbing. And it was doing exactly that. And not only that, but influential believers were buying into it, hook, line, and sinker, and snowballing it to other churches, as was the case in Thessalonica. Lastly, this dangerous and destructive message got as personal as it possibly could for the believers in Thessalonica. In verse 2, Paul refers to a letter that was apparently delivered to and read by the Thessalonian church. And what was so destructive about this letter? It claimed to be from Paul himself. That's what was so destructive about this letter. The Thessalonians had heard this untrue message from someone who claimed to be a prophet, had heard it again from, from another preacher, from another church, and now, as if it wasn't being confirmed enough in their minds, now they have a letter claiming to be from Paul also saying the same exact thing. No wonder the Thessalonians didn't know what to think. Sure, Paul himself had told them something in his first letter to them, but now everything was confirming to them the opposite 
of what Paul had already told them, even giving them a so-called completely opposite message by way of another letter. What in the world were these people supposed to believe? We see here one of the major reasons why Paul felt he had to write this second letter to them right away. Things were quickly unraveling in the Thessalonian church. Once again, threatening to undo everything Paul had established and causing the church to sink into chaos. What did Paul have to once again clear up for the believers as clearly as he possibly could by letter? You might be sitting here thinking, you keep talking about this dangerous message and how Paul already refuted it. What, is the, what did Paul already tell them? We've already referenced it, but it was this belief that as the persecution against the Thessalonian church continued to heat up, and it was terrible persecution, but they took that persecution and they thought that the whole world was already in the midst of the prophesied horrific end times period known as the Day of the Lord, or known to us in theology as the Great Tribulation. You might say, what's the big deal? Why was this so dangerous and destructive that Paul had to devote so much time in both of these letters to this fear? While it was unprofitable to be unnecessarily fearful about something, it was the actions that were coming out of this fear that were causing irreparable harm to the church. Several members were disbanding the church and heading for the hills. They thought, well, if the whole world is, is being thrown into chaos, I'm just going to leave everything and run for the hills. They were disbanding the church and heading for the hills. Several members were already quitting their jobs and giving up on their friendships and familial relationships to focus on their own safety. They thought, I'm, the world is, is going into chaos. I'm looking out for numero uno. Overall, the church was being thrown wildly off course from their Jesus-given purpose and mission to spread the gospel of Jesus' truth and love in the name of their own personal safety. Previously, in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he thought he had already cleared up this topic that the Thessalonian believers were susceptible to. He told them in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the believers had no reason to fear having to go through the Great Tribulation because of the entire purpose of the Great Tribulation. The entire purpose of the Tribulation, Paul had previously shown them from the Old Testament, was for God to pay back the world for all of its evil. That's the entire purpose of the Great Tribulation, to pay the world back for all of its evil. It was the culmination of God's condemnation and wrath over the world. Paul had already told them, as he will tell the Roman church, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. He tells them outright in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. The two don't go together. One of the purposes that Jesus died on the cross for our sins is to save us from the wrath of God, from the anger of God, and from the culmination of the anger and wrath of God. 
That clear theological truth demands that believers have no part in the Great Tribulation. Paul says exactly this when he already told the Thessalonians, wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That word from is meant to convey a complete distinction or separation from. Believers will be completely separated from the coming wrath of God. That is, it will have nothing to do with them. And how will that take place? Paul had already told them that as well. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. And that is how believers will be separated from the wrath that is to come, from the great tribulation. Paul already told them all of this. He thought that they knew all of it. He had already extensively set the record straight about all of this. But they were human. They were human. And so the very next fascinating message that they thought had been confirmed time and time again by several influences once again took root. That they had all missed the rapture and they were all doomed to experience the great tribulation. There is another aspect of this subject that Paul will elaborate on next. But guess what? You'll have to come back next week to find out what Paul says about that. For now, Paul wanted to remind his dear brothers and sisters. He says that now we request you, brethren, my dear brothers and sisters, no matter how loud a message is that comes to them, If it doesn't line up with God's word and what he had already taught them from the word of God, reject it. Don't let it take up any space in your mind. And certainly do not let it derail you from what you're supposed to be doing. Don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed by anything. Cling to the truth of the gospel and the teaching of God's word. Stay the course. Don't veer off to the right or the left. Focus on leaving out the gospel and reaching more and more people for Jesus. That is the only important thing in this life. So we talked about the context. What context Paul was writing into and what he tells them. And secondly, we're going to talk about how it connects to us, the change, what needs to be changed. It may not be the terrifying news that, you've already, that you're already in the middle of the Great Tribulation, but the underlying scenario that was going on in the Thessalonian church is one that we can all take to heart. See, the believers had allowed something to derail them and distract them from living the gospel out wholeheartedly. Something else had chained them down. Something else was consuming them. Something else was threatening to undo all the spiritual growth they had experienced and threatening to ruin the reputation of the church in their community. If you have allowed another issue 
to take precedence over the proclamation of the gospel, today is the day to get rid of it. It may be something political, it may be something personal, or it may be something else, but if something is consuming your thoughts, other than the hope and peace that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission that he has given to us to get that out into the world, then we need to take that and we need to lay that at Jesus' feet and we need to leave it there. We need to entrust it to him. You may be struggling with anger and resentment, either with something that happened in the past or something in the not-so-distant past. You may be allowing yourself to be consumed by something that does not line up with what God wants for you and what God has for you. You may have some personal struggles that are causing you deep depression, whether they be familial, relational, health-related, the loss of a loved one, or something else. It's a very real thing that is always chaining you down and not allowing you to, to, to wholeheartedly be given fully to the redemptive power of God's plan for us. I want to encourage you through the reminder of the whole point God has given you all of himself. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Jesus declared to those who would listen to him that the scriptures that proclaimed freedom to those held in captivity were fulfilled by him. Paul had already told the battered and depressed Thessalonians, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. These things may be trials that you're going through right now, but they are not the end, and they are not an end. They are only a means. They are only a means for growth. There is always a next chapter, and a next chapter, and a next chapter until the day that we breathe our last breath. There is always a calling back to God's original purpose for you. It is to show a dark and desperate world what God's power, God's redemption, and God's love really looks like. It is to show a dark and desperate world what being rooted in the truth of God's word and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ really looks like. It is to share our stories of struggle and growth by God's power, healing, and redemption with those who so desperately need to hear them. Let not any one of us be so proud that we continue to be sidetracked by something other than the truth and love of Jesus established by his death and resurrection. Let us not be focused on anything other than the mission of declaring the gospel of Jesus to a hurting world. Let, us, let not anything derail us or keep us from serving God wholeheartedly in whatever capacity God has given to us. Let not any one of us think that that thing that keeps us chained down is more powerful than the power and freedom that Almighty God offers to us. 
as every single one of us lays down these things that distract us and take our focus off of Jesus at his feet, let us be filled with the spirit-given freedom of living chain-free for the gospel and in serving our king. All of this is not just a one-time thing or only relevant to a certain issue or struggle. It's a way of life. It's a way of life no matter what new issue, new struggle, or new piece of news comes our way. No matter what, nothing changes. Why? Because we're rooted in God's word, and that never changes. We still remain intact, no matter what new piece of news comes along. We will still remain unshaken. We will still remain undisturbed. We will still remain fixed on Jesus. We will still remain in God's peace, no matter what new situation comes our way. We will still remain in God's power, no matter what new spiritual fight comes our way. We will remain rocks rooted in the truth of God's word and in the strength of God's power. If we have committed our lives to Jesus, we know that our eternities are already sealed. They've already been decided. Nothing's going to change that. And since we know that, what does that mean to us now? What strength does that give to us now? Since we know that, nothing in this world will or can change that. And so we move forward with confidence. We move forward with boldness. And we move forward by letting us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin <coughs> that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us, not letting anything weigh us down, not letting anything chain us down, not letting anything distract us, take our eyes, let us veer off to the right or the left, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us, and where do we keep our focus? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and power of your word. I pray that if there's anything that is weighing us down, that is derailing us, that is distracting us, Lord, we lay it at your feet. We give it up. We give it over to you, and we entrust it to you, Lord. We pray that you would overwhelm us with your freedom and your peace. We thank you that you have given us an aim that you have given us something to focus on, and that is you, and that is your message of truth and love. So, Lord, I pray that anything that entangles us, whether it be fear, depression, anxiety, sin, pride, Lord, we lay it down at your feet. We remove it from ourselves. We give it over to you, and we leave it there. Lord, we thank you for already forgiving us of our sin. We thank you for already working in us, healing us, restoring us, redeeming us. We thank you that we do not need to have any fear in this life, 
because we know our eternities are sealed. We know where we're going and nothing else can scare us. We thank you that we even only have this hope, this opportunity because of what you did on the cross and what you did from the grave three days later. We thank you for giving us that resurrection power, that new life through your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be